Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is Broadcast 55, February 4th, 2014. I feel like, you know, in some sense, I haven't, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. It's been a few weeks since I've actually recorded a program. I know a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago, I forgot one, I released four episodes on top of one another, and one of our listeners uh, quickly uh, told me that I should never release four broadcasts in one day because nobody will listen to them all. Well, okay, maybe. But I did that for a reason. Uh, I was behind, obviously, and so I wanted to get them out there before the semester started because once the semester starts, I don't feel like I have time much for anything else. So it's been a few weeks, all that to be said. And here we are uh, doing Faith and Practice number 5 with Dr. Joseph Piper, who everybody knows by now is the president of Greenville Seminary. But more about that in just a minute. Let me catch everybody up a little bit as to what we've been doing in the meantime. Uh, don't forget about the GBTS mobile app. Um, lots of responses, as I've said before, and people keep getting it, keep downloading it. It's great. Use it. Uh, we have all sorts of resources on there, including this podcast as well as Chapel Sermons. And uh, now, uh, with the change in the policies, we're going to be releasing the Theology Conference shortly thereafter um, um, into the general public. So, um, But look for that many weeks after the conference. So go to the website, more information at confessingourhope.com. That's where you'll find out all information about podcasts, past, present, coming up, all those good tidbits that we all need to be alerted to. Now, mentioning and thinking of the Theology Conference, it it seemed like yesterday we were talking about it being months away, and now it's on top of us. Uh, Five weeks from now, uh, Greenville Seminary will be hosting their, I forgot what number. We're actually sitting around. (laughs) 16th. Okay, 16th. We're actually sitting around trying to figure that out before we started this, this afternoon. 16th edition, as it were, of the annual Spring Theology Conference hosted by Greenville Seminary, and and, um, Dr. Pipe was going to talk a little bit before we get into the questions that you have sent in uh, for this edition of Faith and Practice. He's going to talk a little bit about the conference, all the facts, figures, who, what type stuff, and so pay close attention, and and this way you can be more informed as to what we're doing here at the seminary, uh, aside from just doing podcasting, because we do a lot more, thankfully. Sir. All right, Bill. Thank you, Bill. We're very excited about the conference. What we try to do each year, the faculty, we're actually planning in, in years in advance, are to pick either doctrinal topics or practical topics that are before the church today in one form or another. This year, the faculty chose the topic of providence, God's preserving and governing all their creatures and all their actions. And I'm very excited about the lineup of both speakers and topics. Dr. James McGoldrick, our church history professor, is going to deal with Calvin's doctrine of vocation because providence does relate to God's calling in people's lives. Dr. Shaw, our Old Testament professor, just a lot of noise, the issue of providence and the problem of evil. And then Dr. Joel Beakey back, second year, to preach on Tuesday night, definition and beauty of providence. Uh, Wednesday, we're going to have a speaker new to us, Dr. James Anderson, who teaches at uh, RTS in Charlotte, deal with Calvinism and the origin of sin. He's written on this recently, a great communicator. We're very excited about having Dr. Anderson to join us. And by the way, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Shaw 
are going to be doing interviews on the podcast, so listen for those. And then we're very blessed again to have our good friend Derek Thomas back with us. Providence and middle knowledge, a question of now you see it, now you don't. How the one wing of the church has tried to look at God's providence and future events. And then one of our graduates, Benjamin Miller, who has preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, is going to deal with Beautiful in Its Time, a preacher's journey through the mist of providence. That is going to be great. Mm-hmm. Wednesday night I'll be preaching on providence or fatalism from Acts. And then Thursday morning uh, I'll be doing The Devil Made Me Do It, dealing with uh, God and um, the role of sin in his providence, or the role of God in sin. And then the conference will be concluded with Dr. Beakey doing a second message on the Heidelberg Catechism. Last year was its anniversary. It's gripping history and teaching on Providence. So we're very excited about the conference. We still have some seats available, so I encourage you to get online and to register. In connection with the conference, if you are listening or you know a prospective seminary student, we do a prospective student conference. And so we do classes Monday afternoon, Monday night, uh, the night class will be actually in the afternoon this year, and then Tuesday morning. And then there's a lunch uh, for the students, and they're able to attend the conference at, it's what, $15 or something then. Yeah. So we, yep. we give room and board uh, our, our lodging for the students while they're here. But another thing we're doing this year is having a special banquet to honor Dr. Morton Smith, our founder turned 90 in December, has now retired. So we're doing this uh, banquet on Monday evening, March the 10th, at a very wonderful old historic ballroom in downtown Greenville. There's still tables available for that. We hope that you can join us for that. And if listeners have Dr. Smith tributes they'd like to send in to Mr. Mose, uh, please do so. We're putting together a book for him as well. So there's a lot going on. We have a wonderful bookstore that is managed by uh, Heritage Books, as well as some of our own offerings. It's probably the highlight. Outside of our classes, it's the highlight of everything we do during the year. So please join us uh, for this conference on Providence. Yes, and just just for uh, information's sake, the website address, if you don't know by now, is gpts.edu. There's a big banner right there. As soon as you come on the website, you click on that, and it'll take you to the conference information page. All the information you'll need for housing, lodging, you name it, it's all right there, um, as well as registration um, available on the website. And if you do want to mail something in for the tribute for Dr. Smith, um, I was uh, very blessed to have sat under his teaching Um and um, but if you have a tribute you want to send in to him, you can do that. Simply send it to G Mose M O E S at gpts.edu, and that will get to the right people in a timely fashion. For that's that's the the theology conference um, on the doctrine of providence, and it looks to be very very outstanding. And as Dr. Pipe has already mentioned, we are already lining up people for the podcast, uh, guests for the podcast that will be speaking at the conference, and we're going to be talking with them about their conference lecture. So it's sort of a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of a trailer. Uh, yeah, trailer or warm up. Uh, what's that dinner and I left term? Out Derek I'm looking Thomas. For? Yes, Derek, Derek will also be interviewed. Yep, we just confirmed Derek Thomas on the inter- on the program as well. So that's sort of a primer, as it were, to kind of get you excited about uh, the 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 uh, the main event, uh, which is the conference itself. Well, as I said, uh, this is our fifth edition of Faith and Practice. This is the program where you, the listener, determine what we're going to talk about. 
now that we've talked about everything we want to talk about, um, now you determine what we're going to say and do. And this is where you write in questions, you the listener, write in questions to the program, and Dr. Piper sits down, he looks over the questions, he determines which ones we're going to talk about, and then he sends me, after some prodding sometimes, the list of questions that we're going to deal with. So today we have a number of great questions, including a series of questions on the issue of republication. Uh, we've been putting that off and putting it off, and now we're going to, we're going to address these questions in mass um, on the program today. But we're going to get that to the end of the program, so just stay tuned. If you have one of those questions, you will hear it eventually today. But in the meantime, we're going to simply start with two. Keep two in the queue. Do two. Outstanding. I was getting a programming note um, from our producer, <laughs> as Executive it were. Producer. <laughs> Executive producer. But we're going to start with a simple. Uh, I wouldn't say simple, but uh, simply start with this question from Stephanie. She writes in from Rock Island. Tennessee, and the question is, what is the difference between the ontological and economical essence of the triune God, and what is the practical relation to God's redemptive purposes? Stephanie, thank you for a very good question. The ontological trinity comes from the Greek word ontos, has to do with God's being. So when our catechism says there's one God in three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that's the ontological trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, equally God, and the Father and Son and Spirit are of one divine essence. There's not three gods. The economical trinity, uh, the word economics has to do with the working of the trinity, and that relates to their persons, their personal properties. So the Father uh, is eternally the Father as he relates to the Son who is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit, the spiration, is the one who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That relationship, they don't derive their deity. Now, there's a division in the church over that. Some would say that the Son eternally derives his deity from the Father. I prefer to follow Calvin. It's the personal properties. Sonship, the Son derived eternally from the Father. Spirit is eternally derived by the Spirit from the Father and the Son. Economically, then, has to do with the operations. We can boil it down simply that God is the, um, the acting head of the Trinity, the Son is the executor of the Trinity, and the Spirit is the completer and perfecter, in the same way that they relate as first, second, and third persons of the Trinity. So in creation, the Father decreed, the Son is the Word that spoke, and the Spirit who hovers over the original mass of creation is the one who separates and perfects. Well, that's really what happens in redemption as well. God has chosen his people from all eternity in the Son, who's offered himself from eternity to be the mediator of the covenant and the redeemer of his elect. The Son came in the fullness of time then to execute the purposes of God in redemption, through his perfect obedience, sacrifice, death, and resurrection. He has poured out the Spirit, who now regenerates, calls, indwells, and sanctifies and perfects the people of God. Now, the Son in the Old Testament was the basis by which people were saved, and the Spirit in the Old Testament was still regenerating, sanctifying, and perfecting. So, it's an important distinction. It helps us understand, then, when God the Son 
in the earth talks about doing the will of the Father, submitting to the Father, praying to the Father. That's not a subordination. There's no inferiority in there. It's roles. So just as we say in marriage, a husband and wife are equal. They're equal in the church, equal in God's sight. They're equal as image bearers. And yet there's authority structures. And Paul uses that relationship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to show this economic relationship. So they're equal, the same in substance, but in the working of the Trinity, they've got their assigned roles. Good question, Stephanie. Yes, thank you very much for writing in, and I'm going to come back to Stephanie in a minute um, towards the end of the program. I Something I want to alert our listeners to as far as how this program actually gets done week after week, um, the behind-the-scenes kind of thing. But anyway, next question comes from Chuck from Landrum, South Carolina. And no, a, no, we're going to number two. No, number number two is later. No, I, I just signal you as executive producer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we're going to put number two here because I had misread where we were. Okay, going. I've been overruled again, but that happens often around here, i got to tell you. <laughs> You'll learn his place someday. Someday. Yeah, well, anyway, with that said, number two on the list is from uh, – right, uh, Charles writes in from Concord, North, North Carolina. And he asks, could you elaborate on how we live out the general equity of the Mosaic legislation as the Westminster Confession of Faith prescribes? Are we only able to determine the general equity of a Mosaic prescription if a New Testament author does it for us, such as in 1 Timothy 5.18? Good question, Charles. The Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 4, talking about the divisions of the law. So it talked about the moral law and the ceremonial law. Now it says, to them also as a body politic, in other words, as a, a governing political body, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof, may, that the general equity thereof may require. Now the principle of equity is what is the the moral spiritual principle that underlies the judicial law and the judicial sanctions. The the judicial law was for Israel as a political people, and the confession is saying here that it has been fulfilled and is now carried out in the church. So one of the places we look for equity, then what are the moral principles there, is that as the state was governed by these laws, the church should be governed by these laws. So take, for example, what we call the um, sanctions of the law, the death penalties. The death penalties, one of the principles of equity would be that any sin or offense in the Old Testament that merited the death penalty would be grounds for excommunication in the church. That would be the principle of equity. And then Paul, as Charles's question anticipates, Paul then, for example, in 1 Timothy 5.18, gives us one of the applications of the principle of equity when he writes with respect to the law about your oxen. The Scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. In other words, he gets to eat as he's pulling the big stone around. The laborer is worthy as wages. Do you not? Um, well, then he says that God is not simply talking about oxen, is he? Now, that's another place that actually Chuck Charles quotes here, 5.18. But earlier, I think in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul 
uh, again quotes that passage and says God is not concerned about oxen, is he? And God is concerned about oxen, but what Paul is dealing with here is the principle of equity. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, uh, 9, 8, not, no, 1 Corinthians 9, 9, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So Paul is taking a principle there, the labor is worthy, his wages. That's the principle of equity. So we'll find these, but we're not limited. In fact, I think it would be a very profitable exercise And by the way, a little preview, next year's conference is going to be on law. We're going to address this issue of republication. We're going to address the issue of two kingdoms. We're going to address this issue of equity Mm. and antinomianism. And so um, I think there's a, a great deal of profit to be had here if we would look at how the New Testament deals with these laws and then develop principles. Now, we've done that. So, for example... Uh, in the Old Covenant, you they had flat-roofed houses, and they would set up there and use it as a patio. So they had to build a parapet, a fence, around that uh, so that people wouldn't fall off. Well, the principle of equity is if you've got a swimming pool, you don't need the state to tell you to put a fence around it to keep children out of it. You would be responsible to uh, guard your property in a way that there could not be uh, accidental death uh, in your property. So that's one of the areas that we, um, another place Paul applies it is not having um, uh, an oxen and donkey yoked together mm. to pull a plow, and Paul applies that not having mixed marriages. So the, the New Testament gives us principles. I think we ought to work more at how to apply those principles. One other note about the civil sanctions, Calvin, in the last book chapter of the Institutes has a very interesting insight. When the death penalties of the Mosaic Law parallel death penalties in the cultures that didn't have the Mosaic legislation, it'd be very wise to apply those death penalties today. Not mandatory, but wise. Interesting. I want to follow up really quick with um, one of the things that Charles asks here. What if the New Testament is silent? Doesn't bring into to question the things that were stated in the Mosaic Covenant in in the law, how do we then use that? I mean, you, you gave two clear illustrations that were repeated in the New Testament. What about those? But I gave you one that wasn't, okay. remember? I said we look for the principles, and I used the swimming pool, the parapet. Okay. Yes, no. So we look for the how the New Testament applies them, and then we should apply them more broadly, not only in church discipline, but also in these other laws. Now, do you have any suggestions? Uh, it, it would be, it seems to me anyway, that it would be easy to run really far afield in p- applying general equity. How would you do that safely, if that question makes any sense? Well, I think even the ceremonial law, there's equity. For example, the food laws hmm. are teaching us that we are to eat to God's glory. Hmm. And they're not, they're not health laws. They're laws that teach us that God is sovereign over what we eat. And God gave these principles to distinguish his people from the world. So we are reminded then that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we're to do so to the glory of God. Mm, interesting. Wearing um, uh, 
mixed cloth clothing. I'm all for that law anyway. I don't like uh, mixed cloth clothing. <laughs> We're all cotton, all wool, linen, whatever. But what we're being taught there, again, is the need for God's people to be distinctive in their um, lifestyle and not just to uh, mimic the world. Now, that works out as Christian liberty, but God is sovereign of how we dress. Now, the New Testament will apply that to modesty. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, of, uh, of areas where I think a lot of work needs to be done if any of our hearers know of someone that's done work in that area, I surely would like to see it, though, because it is an area that we need to work in. Sure. Outstanding question and one that is often raised, I think, especially when people address, they read through the confession, they see this, and they're like, what is exactly does general equity mean in the application of things, especially in the New Testament economy? So great question. Now, Chuck writes in, <laughs> I think I can safely go to this question now. Chuck writes in from Landrum, South Carolina, and he writes, my wife and I attend a small Reformed Presbyterian church with our young family. My wife has a lovely singing voice and at various times has been asked to sing a solo or a duet during the offertory. Upon consideration, counsel, and prayer, we have decided that she should politely refuse such requests. It is our understanding that singing during corporate worship should be directed towards God by the congregation and that, at the very least, Singing performed by a small minority of the congregation risks becoming a distraction, directing attention to the performers instead of towards God. What is your opinion on solos and duets during corporate worship? Chuck, thank you for a softball lob. Great question. I just dealt with this in worship. Although I say at our seminary we probably take the minority position minority position in our time, but not historically the minority uh, position. I would agree with you 100%, and I will go further. I don't think we should have choirs, uh, nor piano or organ special music either. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, mm-hmm. is that uh, singing during corporate worship should be directed towards God by the congregation. In the Old Covenant, uh, choirs were Levitical uh, assignments at the Tabernacle Temple complex, and the in the worship at the temple, God's the, the worshipers were not singing, but the choirs were singing. What little bit we know about synagogues, the people sang there, and in the New Testament, the commandment is to the church to sing. We don't have people singing for us now. In the development of early Middle Ages the priests began to form these choirs, and choirs were actually a Roman Catholic then, New Testament Roman Catholic innovation. I'm always surprised at the way that, and I've mentioned this before on Faith and Practice, increasingly Protestantism is getting closer and closer to Romanism in lots of different areas. Now, we've had choirs uh, in our Reformed churches probably since they began to develop late 19th century, although the general assemblies of both the Southern Church and Northern Church were opposed to the introduction of those choirs. It's basically another area where Reformed worship has mimicked broader evangelical uh, worship. So I I concur with you. I think that uh, the congregation is the choir. Uh, And I'll go a step further. You talk about offertory. Think about that language. 
Um, the reformers also wanted to do away with all musical instrumentation. The position that we take is that musical instrumentation like offertories, anything within the worship service ought not to be had, but we may use musical instruments as circumstances of worship to accompany singing. And so I agree with you. Now, what I encourage people to do is, because there are people in the church like your wife who have beautiful voices, and the church needs to profit mm-hmm. from that. So on at fellowship meals or uh, special occasions, we have people sing solos, duets. I can remember that uh, Al Martin's church in New Jersey's congregation with an OPC congregation had a choir that practiced together and would do concerts on hymns from Trinity Hymnal. There's lots of things that we should and can do to allow people to use their talents. And for us at the seminary, we, this Friday night we'll have our winter banquet. One of the things we encourage is both children and adults to use their musical talent for behalf, on behalf of the community. So we should make room for these things, but not in corporate worship. Now, that's our opinion. It's an area I don't—I have served a church, had a choir— I encourage the students, don't make this an issue. If you, in good conscience, can't take such a church, don't go there seeking to change it. Uh, if you can go there on the long haul and want to change it, that's different. Uh, but uh, the people that have choirs believe they have a biblical warrant for doing so. And I guess the best defense of that has been written by my friend Joe Moorcraft in his book on worship. So there you can find a defense for not just choirs, but solos and duets. So I'm not saying those people have an unreformed worship, and they're trying to apply the regular principle of worship as we are, but I think, uh, Chuck, that you're, you're going the right direction. Mm-hmm. Great question. And yes, we just, in fact, I just came through that class on worship. It was very helpful for me, um, even not knowing how, help, more, how helpful it was going to be <laughs> in a couple weeks after that. So um, anyway, the Lord's providence works uh, in in these ways. Our next question comes in for a man. I do want to take just a brief personal moment. Um, This man writes in, um, many of you know who he is. He uh, was working very closely with the podcast for quite a while, um, but due to ministerial um, work and responsibilities, was unable to continue helping me line up those guests that you enjoy and get to hear each week. Um, But this question comes in from uh, Mr. Josh Sparkman, who's now pastoring in Alabama. And um, and as I said, he's a good, close, personal friend of mine. has been very helpful to me in many ways, not just with this podcast. So I want to thank him for his service to the seminary in this capacity and for doing a lot, lot of what is many people do not know is awful, difficult, awfully difficult to do. Uh, keep things straight. Keep my calendar straight. Line people up. Constantly communicating because it's almost never a one-time contact somebody and it's done. It, it takes work. And so I want to personally thank him for his labors and his efforts. And it's made us better, um, I think, because of it. So Josh, I am very grateful to you for your help and labors and for your friendship as well. But he writes in, um, just like Josh, to write in on a controversial topic for the church today. And he simply wants to know about the issue of uh, cessationism. Well, it is a a question that has um, perplexed the church, plagued the church, periodically through different ages. Uh, The question has to do with whether the 
apostolic gifts continue in this present age are ceased with the apostolic age. So we're talking about tongues, prophecy, uh, and healings uh, primarily as as these apostolic gifts, but any, any of them that we would find uh, in the Scripture. It is our belief that these gifts have all ceased because they had a very unique purpose in the history of revelation and redemption. To set the table a little more broadly, we often confuse miracles and supernatural acts, and that's the first mistake that we make. Mm. A a miracle is a supernatural act performed by God through a person. That's what we're talking about ceasing, not supernatural acts. If somebody has terminal cancer and we are praying and God heals them, I believe God does that. Because God is God, God is always acting in extraordinary ways and answers to our prayers. And we as Christians live, in a sense, in a, a supernatural environment. So we're not saying that God doesn't do supernatural things, but we're saying that God doesn't do these things through a human agency. Second thing, then, if you'll think about it, there's only been three periods in the history of the Bible where there were miracles contrasted to supernatural acts. And that is the Moses-Joshua era, the Elijah-Elisha era, and Christ and the apostles. All that rest of thousands of years of church history in the Old Testament, you don't have miracles. You don't have any miracles uh, recorded in the Bible before Moses. And then in the time between Joshua and Elijah, you don't have miracles recorded in the Scripture. And then after Elisha, so that whole uh, period. And they said, what about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego or Daniel in the lion's den or the fiery furnace? Well, God preserved them supernaturally, and God can still do that at any time he wants to preserve the life of one of his servants. So that's the second thing to keep in mind. The third, then, when you recognize that pattern, there must be a peculiar purpose. Well, the purpose is to confirm with divine confirmation and authority the development of those eras of Scripture. So Moses with the Mosaic Covenant and the Law, Elijah and Elisha, the prophetic office, Christ and the Apostles, the New Covenant. So there's a confirmation that is taking place as well as illustration of the newness of the message that's being brought in. Now, with that in mind, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's having to defend his apostleship. He says in verse 11, I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody, using a bit of sarcasm there. That's what they said he was, though, was a nobody. Then he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul's saying, You folks ought to know that I'm an apostle because I performed apostolic signs. Namely, I did signs, wonders, and miracles. The question I asked my class at this point is, he's writing to the Corinthian church, We've already seen in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14 that they had these gifts. So if the church had these gifts, how could they be signs of an apostle? Hmm. Well, there's two things. One is he had all of them, but 
more importantly was they could only receive those signs from an apostle. So you remember that when uh, the Samaritans were baptized, uh, Peter and John went up there and laid on hands. The people received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And Paul, writing to the Romans, a church that was not established by apostles and had had no apostolic visitation, uh, tells them in verse 11 of chapter 1, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. They didn't have, and they could have had people that moved there that had these gifts, but as a congregation, they had not had these gifts given to them. Now, the gifts were necessary for a couple of reasons. In the first place, as Paul says, they confirmed the apostolic office and ministry. And Christ says that, or the writer of the Hebrews, Christ says through the writer of the Hebrews, in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 2, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. There's the confirmatory aspect. And then particularly with prophecy and tongues and the revelatory gifts, we need to remember that the New Testament church did not have a completed Bible for decades, into the second century. And so how would the church know in each case how to apply an Old Testament passage or how to deal with a certain doctrinal or ethical issue? Well, they had prophets in the church that would receive messages from God revelation uh, for the sake of that church's ordering. Now, with the death of the apostles, we have a completed canon, prophesied by Daniel in his weeks. And with that completed canon, the scriptures, we have the message confirmed. So when Calvin was challenged by the Roman Catholics, where are your miracles for this new message? Calvin says, we don't need miracles because our message is not new. It is the message of the apostles, and the miracles are in the New Testament. We don't need confirmation. We don't need any confirmatory and revelatory messages now because we have the entire Bible. Ultimately, uh, these people who tout gifts are taken away from the sufficiency of Scripture. So this, this is a brief overview, then, of why uh, we would believe that the gifts have ceased. A couple of useful little books. One is by Walt Chantry, uh, signs of an Apostle, and another one is Warfield's book. I don't remember the exact, but Banner Truth actually has published both of those books, Warfield and Well, on the cessation of miracles. And then Dabney's Collected Writings has got a section on uh, apostolic succession where he gives, gets into a, a remarkable uh, defense of, uh, of this doctrine. Excellent question, especially in the light when we see this all the time. Around the, you know, you turn turn on your. Well, I shouldn't even mention this. Turn on your TV, and you'll see, you'll see these kinds of things, and it makes you scratch your head. I think sometimes as to what is going on and biblical well, biblical ignorance. It's interesting when you say that because when you see this stuff on television, there's such a levity around it and lightness. And I was making this application, preaching through Job again, 
when uh, Eliphaz first answers Job, he relates a vision that he received in chapter 4, verse 12. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Mm. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still. I could not discern its appearance. The form was before my eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice. He had a vision. It was no light, superficial experience. He was not up on stage prancing around in his $1,000 Italian suit or his bouffant hairdo. <laughs> well, her bouffant hairdo. That's Daniel's, Daniel was sick for days after having a vision. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways to see the, that these people are false prophets is the very way that they deliver uh, these messages, their frivolity and superficiality that's designed for television. Yep, the entertainment industry. And, uh, well, I'm not going to go there. I could go there, but I better go to question 10. Well, which isn't question 10 in the list, but it's question 10 in my list. Anyway, this list, the Rush Limbaugh thing, right? Anyway, moving on. Thanks, I Josh. I like Garrison Keller because he's up there throwing sheets away. Is Garrison going, Keeler? Yeah, as he's going through his manuscripts. He's, yes. he's great in his red tennis shoes. It's funny. I do listen to him from time to time. You could learn a lot from him, Bill. <laughs> I love you, Dr. Boyd. Let's go. Question number 10. Anyway, Ben Benjamin, excuse me, writes in from Ellsville, Mississippi, and uh, he has a really—it's a really good question. Um, one I've actually pondered myself, frankly, um, <clears throat> through the years. But he writes: the larger catechism's question and answers on the Ten Commandments are long, extensive, and biblically supported at every step by clear Scripture, and it seems as if they are largely ignored. For example, question 139's prohibition on lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, and stage plays. And certainly not taught. My question, very simply, is why does the larger catechism receive such short shrift in our day, and what can be done to recapture the blessings of the Westminster Larger Catechism? Well, Benjamin, you've addressed one of my favorite issues. Often when I'm out teaching, I'll do a little survey, not preaching, but teaching. I ask people to raise their hands if they've read the Confession of Faith. Pretty good. Shorter catechism is a good group there. Larger catechism, cut by two-thirds. Every Presbyterian church I go into. I call the larger catechism the Cinderella Mm. of the three documents. The red-headed stepchild. The most beautiful, the least, the most neglected. It really is the heart of biblical experimental theology. It's here that we get fleshed out these questions on the means of grace and how we preach and how we read Scripture, Mm. how we behave with the two sacraments. And, of course, the exposition of the Ten Commandments is quite remarkable. A whole ethics course can and should be designed around it with question 99 giving us the principles of how to interpret the law of God and then going through each commandment. And so uh, all of my hearers, I encourage you, You begin reading the larger catechism. On our website, you can find a reader that I've written that uh, enables you to read the Confession of Faith, Larger and Shorter Catechisms annually. So you can get on the website. If you have trouble finding that right, Mr. Hill, and he will make sure it 
gets more discoverable. I myself have trouble finding things at times on our website. But anyway, uh, so that would be a way to get you more exposed. The particular illustration that Benjamin gives, I'm sorry that you're not hearing this, but if you look, um, we should be hearing sermons about the lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, and stage plays. It's not that the pulpit is to address um, necessarily fiction. I read fiction. I go to the movies. don't care to dance, but there are those that, uh, for example, a lot of this old-fashioned country dancing or whatever, the contra-dancing, whatever. Um, And you'll read in many of the Puritans, they were well aware of Shakespeare and would quote him or allude to him. Uh, So it's not necessarily fiction, uh, movies or stage plays, but if these things in any way promote immorality, Mm -hmm. then we are to avoid them. And uh, years ago, Francis Schaeffer, in a piece on art, distinguished between a piece of art that, say a book, refers to adultery or fornication and one that promotes it. If it tempts you, then it's lascivious. If it uh, is not tempting but merely – if you read the biography of Augustine, you're going to understand that he was a fornicator. Mm-hmm. And you can't really understand Augustine's past without knowing about that. And so – but there's nothing that should be written that would entice others to do that or that would get into – graphic uh, descriptions. So we need to get, particularly in this area of of what kind of movies we go to. Um, Or watch streaming on Netflix or on TV, any of those. I forget the age I live in. See, whether you do it in the privacy of your home or in the theater, uh, movies that depict nudity uh, are that become very suggestive and enticing with sexual activity are simply movies that we ought not to expose ourselves to. We're just exposing ourselves to seeing things. Again, we go back to the Old Testament, all the business about uncovering uh, women's nakedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Dr. Shaw has done some work in the area of applying that to pornography. I think that's a very applicable area. So, folks, get the larger catechism and get acquainted with it and build it into your devotional life. Good question, Benjamin. And, and again, it's uh, you're right. It the larger catechism is well. I just I said it. The redhead, oh. the redheaded stepchild. By the way, there is uh, an excellent, uh, very comprehensive commentary on the larger catechism by my friend Joe Moorecraft. Oh yes, it's uh, f- what four or five. Hours? It's quite a few, and I don't have it. I know you, I see you looking around. I don't have. I it. have it. Uh, a new one's been just issued, well, fairly new, reissued by Voss, um, not uh, not Gerhardus, but Johann. And then the old classics, the two volumes by Thomas Ridgely. Mm-hmm. So we've got three really good resources now on the larger catechism, and I would encourage you to have all of those. Yep, great resources, great helps for the catechism that is by and large ignored. Um, I've been teaching actually through the larger catechism at a church and in their adult or their Christian education class and uh, through going through the Ten Commandments, what the larger catechism says. And I, and I said, I challenge anybody to read 
the statements the larger catechism presents as to the full unfolding of what these laws mean and then say to me, I don't sin. <laughs> it's, it's very striking um, section especially, but it's all very good as well. Well, that brings us to the end of the, I don't know what the word is, random questions. And now we come to the ones that we've kind of shuffled around for a number of broadcasts um, because we want to give it good, a good treatment. Um, but it's really the issue, and I don't know that it makes sense to read all of these questions because there's a handful, and they're all me, pretty much saying yeah, the same thing. Let me thing. summarize what we're talking about and then give some basic answers at this point, and then we'll welcome specific follow-up questions. The... One of the uh, distinct things taught by Meredith Klein is called republicationism. Dr. Klein's view was that the Mosaic Covenant was not part of the covenant of grace, but was in fact a unique covenant made with the people of Israel. It was a covenant of works. So the republication uh, says that in the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of works is being republished and that the children of Israel, the church, would have entered into its mm. promises, its temporal promises and inheritance by keeping the covenant of works. Now, the people would be saved by grace, but the, the first major issue is the covenant itself is not a covenant of grace. It is a covenant of works by which the people entered into their inheritance. Now, I've actually heard some distinguished Reformed teachers say what dispensationalists say, and that is it was a mistake for Israel ever to accept that covenant. Now, I'm not sure all of them would say that. Republicanism might be a bit like some other things today that maybe all the adherents don't hold to all the uh, different facets I can only deal with it in, in broader terms in this manner. Now, there are two other views with respect to the Mosaic Covenant, and both of them would be confessional, and that is that it is the next in line of the Covenant of Grace. So the Covenant of Grace is administered from the Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant. By the way, many Republican people also do not think the Noahic Covenant is part of the Covenant of Grace, and others as, as well. I think it is. The Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, within those that hold that the Mosaic Covenant is part of the Covenant of Grace, there's two further schools. Uh, one is that uh, it is merely has no relationship to uh, the Covenant of Works. Uh, and the other is that there is a recapping of the covenant of works within it as part of the purpose of grace. That's not republication as it's being taught by Klein. That would have been a position of many of the Puritans. Mm. So uh, John Murray and Palmer Robertson would hold to the position that there's no repetition of any covenant of works principles. So when you come across the phrase, the Mosaic economy, do this and live, they're simply saying that that has to do generally with the life of sanctification and that God does bless and reward people that seek to, his, his people who seek to serve him according to the law. The other position would be that uh, God repeats in the Mosaic covenant the 
a promise that, and the requirement, you must keep the law of God perfectly if you're going to be saved, and if, uh, if you do so, you'll have salvation. It's repeated there uh, for the purpose of driving people to grace. And so one of the three uses of the law is to, to strip men of their self-righteousness and drive them to Christ. And so the law does that, as it did in the case of the Apostle Paul. I add to that that I believe that the, the re- repetition in the Mosaic Covenant of the Covenant of Works is how Christ fulfilled the Covenant of Works for us. Both the promise, obey perfectly and you'll have life, but also the one who hangs on a tree is cursed, and he, he bore the curse. And so the Mosaic Covenant was the packaging of the covenant by which Christ then fulfilled that. So there could be a restatement within it of the covenant of works, but not it was not a covenant of works. Now, John Owen had a fourth position that's even stranger, and he said it's neither uh, bird nor fowl. Um, and I won't even try to go there today. Uh, much as I respect John Owen, that's just one place I think he was way off, uh, way off base. Now the problem with the republicanism uh, is that it, in the end of the day, um, undermines the moral law of God that's revealed in the Ten Commandments. And so what you find uh, in many republicanists is that the the Ten Commandments are not applicable to the. New Testament Christian, we have to go to uh, the Pauline and the Christ commandments and ethics of the Old Testament. Now, this carries over into two kingdom, which we dealt with further earlier, and a couple of these questions are relate, re- recognize the relationship of of these two things. Uh, the two kingdom is is that one of the things that they teach, for example, in uh, Dr. Van Drunen's popular book, he actually says about three times in the section of the Sermon on the Mount that the Mosaic uh, Law was abrogated. Um, very broad, general, sweeping statement. That's not what Paul means when he says that uh, we're under grace and not under the law. Um, and so then the law of the Old Covenant is not applied. Uh, we have to go to the New Testament. Secondly, that the law of the Old Covenant is not applied outside the church. And thus the church doesn't take stands on homosexual marriage and things like that. Um, When in fact the law of God speaks to all of those who bear God's image. So these are some of the issues. Uh, It is my opinion that republicanism is not biblically accurate, but also it is very... um, anti-confessional and let's stir the pot some you people write back I don't think it should be taught in reformed churches now you'll find a good critique of it in articles by Palmer Robertson both in his book on Christ and the Covenants I think he wrote a piece in the Westminster Journal as well he actually calls it reformed dispensationalism so interesting term reformed dispensationalism you heard it here first well second since he started it but it is interesting, and, and as Dr. Pipe has indicated, if, if that didn't suffice or it sparked more questions or 
irritations or concerns. Yeah, disagreements are fine. Disagreements are fine. That's that's why you get to write in. <laughs> and get a free book. I, I don't filter them. I just send them to them as I get them. Um, and so if, if, if that didn't help or hurt or whatever the case may be, uh, write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. Or you can use the form on the website, confessingourhope.com, um, which I fixed finally. Um, what, a, what a mess. But anyway, fixed. You can write that, and, and, and I will get that email, as well as you will get a copy of your own email to make sure that it actually went. Um, don't, don't even go there. I had all kinds of questions on the old form that were just piling up, and I didn't even know about it because I wasn't being alerted. So it was really awful. Um, but write in. And uh, we'll deal with it. Um, we're not afraid of those things here, um, but you know that's that's what we're we going do. back to Stephanie. Is that that's, to talk that's about the we, book? That's what we do the program. No, um, I went back to. I was going to go back to Stephanie because, as I mentioned, Josh it has uh, Mr. Sparkman has helped me. Oh yeah, considerably um, over the last year, um, and um, but my new assistant, as it were. Um, is Stephanie's husband, Jared. He was also a student here at, at the seminary, and now he has now been tasked with the um, responsibility uh, to secure guests, line people up, and do all the jumping through hoops that it takes to make that happen. So um, so welcome, Jared, to the podcast team, as it were, and um, and he's the man really behind the scenes that makes this work. Um, I have the easy job, as it were, uh, and the more upfront job, but... Um, Anyway, so welcome, Jared, to the Confessing Our Hope podcast team. Tell them about the book, though, if we answer the question, if we use the question. Right. That's right. And, of course, as most of you know by now, but if you've been living under a rock and not sure what's going on around here, uh, if we do use your question on the air, we will. We have a list of books that the, that the seminary has graciously donated to the program to advance this particular uh, segment of the podcast. If you write in, we use your question. Um, you, you get to choose one of those books. It's an extensive list um, that we provide. And we send it to you postpaid. It doesn't matter where you live. We've sent them all over the country, all over the world, actually, at this point. So um, so write in. Uh, you know, it may – just write in. That's the easiest way to deal with it. And it's not restricted to any tongue, creed, race, or any other thing. Just write in. And we will deal with it. And I think – by and large, we deal with all the questions. At some point along the way, we have dealt with every question. We haven't just – Only two we haven't only two. I need be, to go finish reading the book. And Yeah, and it's my fault because I haven't gotten, gotten the books to them yet. But in general, um, we, we deal with them all. Uh, we may not deal with them right away, but we, we, we rotate them into the next segment, and they get dealt with. So um, and we need questions now because and, outside of the two book questions yeah, we have no questions. Yeah, left. we're we're bankrupt at this point. So write in, write in your questions. There's plenty of questions out there. I might write in a few myself just because, like, what's the question? The answer to question number seven in the final exam. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, P- Dr. Piper, thank you again, once again for doing this. Um, I know it's always a good time, and we joke and laugh and but it's these are serious matters as well and it's good to see people thinking through these theological issues um as they endeavor to walk with christ and and again these theological issues they're not just meant to spark us intellectually they, they should do that but they should go beyond that and as we seek to apply scripture to all of life um these questions will help us in that area 
Let me tell you quickly what's coming up on the program. It's already been highlighted, but let me just briefly go over it. Um, Next week, I will be talking with Ben Miller. He's a graduate of Greenville Seminary about his conference paper that he'll be presenting at the Theology Conference. I forget the topic. Uh, I don't have the material in front of me, but um, anyway, look forward to that discussion. The week after that, Dr. Ben Shaw, who's uh, on faculty here, also uh, teaches Old Testament as well as Hebrew and a a number of other things. He will be on to talk about the issue of evil. Uh, I think his lecture topic is much to do about nothing. So that should be a very interesting discussion. And then the week after that, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Derek Thomas about his conference uh, lecture as well. So those are some highlights of what's coming up on the program. So if you have any questions, you can use our website, confessingourhope.com. There you'll find all the information you need about what's going on around here. Um, And a lot is going on. So until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.